All right, you good? Oh, good. Both of you are doing well. That's encouraging to me. Gosh, I'm so... I mean, we're in probably one of the best parts of your Bible here this morning. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, a little black one. Uh, if you don't have one, go ahead and take it. Read it till the cover falls off. Come on back. We'll give you another one. Uh, this is an important section of Scripture that we're in here today. Turn all the way to your right. And I want to start not in the text that we're going to be in, but I want you to start in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and I'm going to give you a significant running start on a passage like this. Uh, As we've been moving through our our study of the book of Revelation, I hope it's been instructive to you. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. Uh, I know it's been to me. This book requires a lot of work uh, as you look at major biblical themes that that kind of tie themselves all together uh, at the end of your Bible. And we're in the last um, 1920, 21, 22, the last four chapters. We spent a lot of time dealing with the wrath of God in 6 through 18. And now we're going to look today, Jesus comes back. Don't take that out of context, but he comes back here in this text. Yeah, you got that joke. Dean, you got it. Uh, he doesn't come back today. So um, what I want to do as we begin is look at Revelation chapter 1. All the way through the book of Revelation, we have been looking primarily at the character of God and how God responds and reacts to a world that is hardened by sin. All throughout this book, we've been looking at uh, who God is, what he is like, how he responds to those who would refuse to repent, those who would persecute and martyr his people, those who would harden their heart against the lamb who's poured out his life for the forgiveness of sins. And what we're going to do is really pull together two big ideas from Revelation 1 and Revelation 19. Revelation 19 in this passage, 11 through 21, is where we're going to be. This is a picture of Jesus with no mercy, no grace. We just sang about uh, he came from heaven running with mercy in his eyes. This is Jesus with no mercy, no grace, no kindness, no forgiveness, no patience, no tenderness whatsoever. It is Jesus unleashed. Uh, against a world that has been hardened in its sin and rebellion against God and against the Lamb. So take a look at Revelation chapter 1 with me here together. And we're just going to move through because what we have here in the book of Revelation is what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, is a thematic idea all throughout the Old Testament and really into the New Testament as well that looks at God returning and responding to sin and ultimately and finally eliminating it. Okay, so, so there's, there's almost too much biblical material on this. We could spend time, uh, honestly, in Zephaniah, Isaiah, Joel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, uh, portions of Jeremiah. You, you could do it. Uh, for weeks and weeks as you look at how the Old Testament and really the New Testament set up this idea. But what I want to do is track it through Revelation real quickly for you. So look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 is what I want to show you. Revelation 1, verse 12. Here's the first encounter that John has with Jesus Christ. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining 
in full strength. This is what causes John to fall down and worship this, uh, this image of Jesus Christ. Now, what you saw in Revelation 1.12 there and following are all of these thematic ideas about Jesus and who he is. And if you remember, when we looked at Revelation 2 and 3, we looked at Jesus and his relationship to the churches. And do you remember how each of those letters carried an idea, a, a certain element of his character that became the, uh, the central idea in how the church reacted and responded to the truth of who Jesus was and who he is. And all through those letters, we had Jesus talking, either commending or criticizing or encouraging these churches. And often the thing that he would say is, this is who I am, the words of the one who has the sharp sword. And he would talk about in the letter to Pergamum, for example, uh, repent, otherwise I'm going to come and make war against you with the sword of my mouth. And consistently through the churches, we have this uh, commendation or this uh, encouragement or this critique from Christ and there's this demand to repent. Now, that's what began this book. But we're going to have almost an identical picture here in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back, only there's no opportunity for repenting. There's no opportunity to turn. All you're going to have is the image and the vision of Jesus Christ who is bent uh, on making war, is what this passage will say. So turn forward from Revelation 1, and let me show you where we've been. Look at Revelation 6. Revelation 6, uh, verse 15. This began, the seven seals opening, the wrath of God beginning. Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand, that all of the earth recognizes that the wrath of God is, is coming through this person called the Lamb. Turn forward to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, we had these images and visions of the future conquest and the future victory of God's people put side by side. Look at Revelation 14, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's this future picture of the last battle. Turn to Revelation 16, two chapters to your right. Look at verse 12. In the bowl judgments, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. One more place, turn to Revelation 17. You see the theme that we're tracking? We're tracking toward this one final battle. This one final battlefield where the lines are set 
and Christ returns and the beast and the ant I'm sorry the antichrist and the false prophet have gathered the kingdoms of the world and now they are coming to make war on the lamb that's what you see in revelation 17 look at revelation 17 verse 12 the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called chosen, are called and chosen and faithful. Now turn to Revelation 19. Verse 11, what is your picture of Jesus? If we were to pause right now as you walked in this morning, what are the images that come to mind when you think of Jesus Christ? No matter what they are, I think we, we all have an impulse, an instinct of things that we think of when we think of Jesus Christ. We think of kind of him as this super philosopher, or he's definitely got shoulder length hair, or he's just kind of happy and breezing through his day, touching people and healing people and doing things that for us are miraculous. You may think of him as a great teacher. One commentator said that when you reach Revelation 19, verse 11, this is a text that almost defies exposition. It's so incredibly powerful in the descriptions that it gives you of Jesus Christ. It's meant to strike fear into your heart. It's meant for you to read and go, he is bigger than I ever imagined him to be. You need Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, to round out your theology of who Jesus Christ is. And that's really the purpose of this text. You need a place where Jesus arrives and eliminates sin and persecution and injustice and hatred and all the rest of it. And you need somebody to put it right. And this passage is really broken up into two big ideas, the warrior and the war. And you're going to see them both here upon his return. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that this morning we would leave this place with, uh, with a new appreciation for Jesus Christ. That we would see things about him that perhaps we have not considered before. That for those who may be in this room and think Jesus is easy to reject and easy to ignore, I pray that this text would capture us, that we would stand in awe of who Jesus is, that these words and these truths about his character put on display might grip us, would shape us, and would cause us to leave this place desiring to live lives that are worthy of who he is. So, Father, for those who come in here this morning and are discouraged and uncertain about whether or not you love them, about whether or not you're in control, about whether or not you care about injustice, would we find great encouragement in your word here this morning? May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 19, verse 11. The rider on a white horse. Then I saw heaven open. Now, you've been waiting for this for 19 chapters, haven't you? When you read this book, you have felt the divine restraint and patience 
and the almost surgical expression of God's wrath that has been explained and revealed slowly, almost painstakingly through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. In the beginning, when heaven is open for John in Revelation chapter 4, it's to let John come into heaven. Though in Revelation chapter 19, it turns and it, it is time to let Jesus come forth. So heaven is opened, and behold, a white horse. This is probably a symbolic picture of who Jesus is upon his return. The entire image that John would be seeing here is one of a victorious, conquering Roman general. That these heroes, as they come from come back from war, ride white horses, are arrayed in this beautiful regalia of victory, that who follow them are their victorious armies, and the victory is proclaimed and seen and exalted in the person of who this, uh, of who this general would be. So this entire image that you're supposed to see here is of a war hero, it's not Jesus meek and mild. It's Jesus victorious and true. It's that Jesus has been the ultimate hero, the ultimate, ultimate conqueror. And that's what captures John's eyes as this image begins. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Now, that's not a new explanation of who Jesus is, is it? We've seen, really, this book begins with the, um, Jesus calling himself the Amen, or uh, the faithful witness, or the true witness. But again, all of these attributes of Jesus are now going to be expressed in a much different context than one calling the church to repent. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if judgment begins here, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So this book is put together in such a way that you would encounter Jesus Christ early in your life, early in your walk with God, that you would see who he is and respond in repentance, not get to the end of life and recognize that you have rejected the single greatest person in all of the world's history who has now become your judge. So the faithfulness and truth of Jesus Christ in this context of a conquering war hero is that Jesus will ultimately be faithful to his word to judge sin. Not for the Christian who many times finds encouragement in the faithfulness of Christ, who will see us through the valley and see us through difficulties and through hardships, and we will recognize that though we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. But now at the end of Revelation, we discover that Jesus is faithful, and now Jesus will be faithful to his word. He will be true to his word. He will judge sin. He will respond to injustice. He will respond to the cries of his people from Revelation chapter 6 who have asked and cried out to him, how long, O Lord, until you will judge and avenge our blood upon the earth? And there's coming a day when Jesus will respond because he is faithful to his word. He is true in terms of who he is. So he must judge, he must respond. He must react to this world in Revelation that is now darkened and hardened and deceived and worshiping the beast. He's faithful and he's true. 
Not only that, in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. Now, I want to show you this from Jesus' perspective. This isn't new to the book of Revelation. Turn back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus speaks of this himself, explaining who he is and how he has authority as the Son of Man. John chapter 5. Look briefly, John chapter 5 here at 518. You see the the turning point in Jesus' testimony about himself is what gets him crucified by the religious leaders of the day. They can't bear that Jesus makes himself equal with God. Look at 518. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now watch this, watch what Jesus says in John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus says in John 8, I always do what is pleasing to the father. I am always consistent with the father's desires. He and I are in lockstep. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, watch this, but has given all judgment to the Son. He has put the right of judgment into the hands of Jesus Christ. This is what is said in Psalm 2. When God says, I have installed my king on my holy hill. I've I've put my mark of favor upon this individual. Verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. You remember, Son of Man is the the phrase from Daniel that Daniel sees one like a son of man presenting himself before the Ancient of Days and receiving the kingdom from his hand. It's the same picture in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter five, that now the son of man receives the authority, the deed to the earth in righteousness and in truth for his faithfulness to God and now receives the right to bring God's plan of salvation ultimately to, to, um, to consummation, to fulfillment. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus recognizes in himself when he chooses to give life and he extends the offer of forgiveness and right standing with God, he also recognizes that he has the authority to judge, which is what we see in Revelation chapter 19. That Jesus is now on the scene again with the right to rule and to judge for sin. Now come back to Revelation 19. This is not a small idea in the New Testament passages. In fact, Paul uses it in Acts chapter 17 in his uh, gospel presentation to the men at Athens. He says he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he's given assurance to all by his resurrection from the dead. Paul recognizes that a good gospel presentation includes repentance, the uh, extension of the offer of forgiveness, and consequences for refusal. Now, if you come to me today and go, Steve, how may I be made right with God? And we talk about the uh, goodness of God's creation, the failure of mankind and their sin, the offer of the one true God-man who heals our relationship with God and who can take our sins away and bring us to heaven for all eternal joy. And you go, I'm not into that. That's not for me. Then that choice comes with consequences. You may not feel them now. You may walk away from that conversation going, "Mm, I'll think about it. I'm not really sure where I stand with Jesus. There's lots of other things I'd like to get done in my life. But make no mistake, when it comes to the scriptures, that decision comes with profound and dire and desperate consequences. Jesus is not ambivalent about that decision. Paul is not ambivalent about that decision as if that decision doesn't matter. Because if you do not know him as savior, you will discover him as a man of war. Back to Revelation 19. Y'all there? 19.11, say yes or no. Yes, Revelation 19, you're there. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Again, a description we've seen earlier in this book. Only Jesus with eyes of flame of fire speak to his ultimate discernment that he sees through. How was the dragon and the beast and the false prophet characterized but with Deception and false signs and false wonders and things that cause people to disbelieve in Jesus and who he is because they have been deceived and this great delusion has come upon people, but not with Jesus. Jesus doesn't come back and and is confused or is uncertain as to what is happening. He sees through to the truth of things. Is that an encouragement to you? That Jesus always sees things accurately. Ever feel like you can't see things accurately? that you can't read the room, that you don't know what's happening in this season of life, that you can't understand the truths that God is working in you and working through you and dealing with in your family or your workplace or the relationships you have? Isn't it an encouragement to know that Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire and can see exactly right down to the heart of things? Now that may make you nervous and it should make you nervous because it makes you nervous here. Because when Jesus arrives with eyes like a flame of fire, he's about to cut through all of the deception and lay bare all the truth of what is happening. That's gonna be, that idea right there is gonna be important for our time here toward the end. So keep that in mind. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Now, the crown, the diadem is a crown. Um, And the, the crowns in this book have been one of two things. One, they've been a conqueror's crown called the Stephanos. And it's a crown that's given to athletes in victory. It's kind of like a, a gold medal, a silver medal, a bronze medal, only they would have a, an olive wreath or a twisted together crown that they would wear, proving that they have been victorious in the games. But up until this point in the book of Revelation, this crown has been mentioned only in two places. 
You saw what we read from Revelation chapter 17 that these 10 kings will come together in the last days to receive royal authority. The diadem isn't a conqueror's crown. It's a crown of royalty. It's a crown that throughout the ages, those world powers that have been risen up have been given a kind of royal status, that they have a stature in their authority, that they wear crowns of royal and significant authority. They're recognized throughout the ages, these big world powers that we've looked at, of Egypt and Babylon, Assyria, the Persians, Greek, Romans, this last one world power which tells you that the tension and the fight throughout the scriptures is over who's the boss. One of the major lessons that we teach our kids up until about five is that we ask this question consistently, who is the boss? Who is in charge? Why has God given you a mom and a dad and laid out authority in such a way that it's for your good and for your protection? And when you come to Revelation chapter 19, and here's this image of Jesus Christ, it's kind of a goofy image, isn't it? Imagine an armful of crowns that an individual is trying to wear. It looks dumb. But this image for John is to let you know that he is sovereign everywhere. He is the authority in every place. And that authority and power throughout this book has been either usurped by the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, or it's been rightly recognized that either Jesus is king or somebody else is trying to be king who's not Jesus. Now, does that encourage you? That Jesus is sovereign in every place, in every time, in every situation, that there's never a time where Jesus goes, that's not my authority to take. That's not my job over there. Is that the image that John has now of Christ is that he has royal divine authority in every place, in every season, and in every time. The picture of a Roman general like this, this happens in David's kingdom where he's the, uh, I believe it's the Amalekites, they slay the Amalekites maybe somebody else, and they take that crown and they put it on David's head, recognizing that David has the authority. So it's as if in this picture where divine authority has been usurped by these 10 kings and the antichrist and the false prophet of the day, it's as if God takes all of the crowns off their head and puts them on themselves so that John would know this is the one true sovereign. This is the one true authority. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Steve, what's the name? I don't know. Why is it there? I don't know. Why doesn't he tell us? I don't know. You know, as I've pondered that, there's a, if you, um, you remember Samson? Remember that? Remember Samson in your Old Testament? He's a guy, really, really strong, has a real problem with women, doesn't go well, blinded, dies. That's his whole life. Uh, at the beginning of Samson's life, uh, the angel of the Lord shows up with his parents. 
and he has a conversation with the parents. And first he shows up to the, to the wife, I believe, and the wife tells her husband and goes, oh man, God, God told us to do this and I don't know what we're supposed to do. Let's pray and ask this angel to come back and give us some more information about how we're supposed to raise this son. The angel of the Lord comes back and the husband and the wife talk to the angel of the Lord and they say, will you tell us what your name is? And the angel of the Lord says something really, really strange. He responds with a question saying, why are you asking my name? Seeing as it is wonderful. It's a word that's only two times in your Old Testament. It shows up one other time in Psalm 139 where David says, these truths are too marvelous and too high for me. And while you read this and you go, well, why doesn't he tell us? One of the reasons I think this is here is that when you and I um, come to a knowledge of Jesus and who he is, God gives us sufficient knowledge for our redemption and our salvation. But for you, an infinite created being, to know an eternal God, it will take an eternity for you to know who he is. That in a sense, when I arrive in heaven, there will always be mysteries about Jesus Christ that I will forever grow in. That how does worship go on forever unless you have an eternal, infinite God who you are always learning about, who you are always discovering the depth and goodness and kindness of his character year after year after year. And this picture of Jesus Christ in this passage is that when he arrives, there's this image of his essential deity. He is altogether different than us. Amen? That he has a name and a depth and an infinity about him that we will forever be learning. And will, have, you, have you found that? That in your journey with Jesus Christ, how many have been walking with Jesus Christ more than 20 years? Give me your hands. Now raise them high like you know who he is. Okay? That, are there things that you have learned about Jesus Christ at year 20 that you didn't know at year 5? Yeah. How many of you have been walking with Jesus less than 20 years? Raise your hand. All right. 20 year old and over. You got a lot of discipling to do. See, this is what it means to walk with God. That there are seasons and times and, and, and kind of relational steps that we take with Jesus where we discover more and more and more about who he is. Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? So when we see Jesus here, we see his essential deity. Verse 13, look at his clothing. You have his character, his clothing, and his conduct is how this lays out halfway through the message. I'll give you the outline. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Why is it dipped in blood already? Hang on to that idea, and I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. You've had three names so far talked uh, that explain who Jesus is. He's faithful and true. He carries an unknown name. Number three, he's called what? The word of God. What does that remind you of in your Bible? John 1, 1 John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if there's any doubt as to who this is, it's been eliminated at this point in the story. But when it comes to the Word of God, John chapter 1 talks about the incarnation. 
that no one has seen God, the only God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, John chapter 1 says. His incarnation tells us something about God, but this is a different context. This context is explaining something about God that you don't really want to know. So that when he is called the word of God here, I think in context it has to do with his judgment. Let me read this to you from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the word of God, but, and it's not personified as much as it is in John or in the book of Revelation. But let me read you this from Hebrews chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. Here's what it says. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You connect the word of God with the eyes like a flame of fire, and you have totally faithful, true, and accurate insight and judgment. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So that in Revelation chapter 19... The disclosure of God, the word of God is about to be revealed as this is what God thinks about sin. Not this is what God is like, this is how God reacts and responds, which is what you'll see as we go on. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Who's been dressed in fine linen in this book? You've had the martyrs, the tribulation saints. You've had the angels that stride forth with the bowl judgments. You've had the bride that we've already looked at. You have the elders around the throne. All of these individuals comprise this army of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and they were following him on white horses. Can you ride a horse? You better learn. Are you going to see the second coming? No, you will be the second coming because you will arrive with Jesus Christ coming out of heaven to see the final and ultimate destruction of his opponents. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. You have cross references there? I don't have time to go to all these cross references, but you probably have Psalm 2 there. Move your head in a direction if you know what a cross reference is. It tells you about, uh, Psalm 2 is the great enthronement psalm. It's the psalm that tells you who Jesus is, how God has affirmed his rule, and now how he will rule when he returns. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Psalm 2, uh, Isaiah 63, we've already looked at it, that in, this, uh, in the study of this book. You can read those on your own, but they're all victorious psalms. They're vic victory passages about Jesus coming to eliminate and obliterate his enemies, which is what we've seen already. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you've seen the names all the way through this passage, that he's faithful and true. That he has a name that only he himself knows about himself, speaking to his essential deity. Number three, that he's the word of God. 
both revealing what God is like and demonstrating God's judgment towards sin. And finally, he is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. Now, there's another visible image of Jesus and who he is. Now, let's see what he does. What is this warrior going to do? Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that directly fire overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, this is going to be a different supper, wouldn't you agree? We've had these major events in the last three chapters we've looked at. In 17 and 18, you had a funeral. In the beginning of 19, you have a marriage supper. You have the the party that comes when God and his people are finally joined together. And now you have a war. Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, in the next two verses, it's almost an embarrassing amount of information. The battle is so, this is the point, this is the time in the movie that you want the most information. You want to see the forces of good against the forces of evil, and you want to see a knockdown, drag out fight. This is a four-second knockout. This is why did I pay to watch this fight? All of the forces of evil are eliminated in two verses. Between the period of verse 19 and the period of verse 21, everything is done. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. That's it? Jesus shows up, the beast is captured immediately. I mean, in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. It was a fight. This isn't even a fight. The beast was captured, with it the false prophet. Now, here's what, I want you to see this, because this matters for your Monday I want to show you verse 20 just for a second. Look at verse 20. Why are we reminded of what these individuals did? Let's read it. The beast was captured with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. It's as if you're taken back over the course of the entire book and you're reminded that this battle is a battle about truth and lies. This battle is a battle about deception. This battle is a battle about what you worship and about whether or not you will take the mark of the beast in the last day and worship the image that he demands. which means that this last battle is still raging today because you will walk into your Monday facing the deception and the lies of the enemy. Remember what Paul says, that our battle is not against flesh and blood? 
but against the principalities and the powers and the spiritual forces of this present age. One of the greatest problems I think that we face as Christians is fighting the wrong battle. That we don't understand the stakes. We don't understand that when Jesus shows up in our lives, he has come to give us knowledge about him who is true. Do you know that? That so many times I think the battle is like out here with people and relationships and the plans I have and when my plans don't come to fruition, I'm getting persecuted and I feel like I'm in a war. You ever feel like that? Gosh, I'm in this battle and God, nothing is working the way I want it to. God, would you win this battle that I really want? God, would you change these circumstances? And a lot of times, we don't look at the battles the way God looks at battles. Do you know all through the Old Testament, God goes to war for his people. And the major problem that God has is that his people would trust him. You know that? They're always trying other stuff. They're always seeking after other gods that give them what they want, when they want it. Remember when the nation of Israel fired Samuel? And they said, we want a king like all the nations that will go and fight their battles. And they fire Samuel right after he wins a battle. Right after he, he does, goes through all of this work of setting up a sacrifice and sacrificing an animal, sitting there and, and praying to God and seeking for his favor. And it says that God thunders and routs the Philistines. And then the people of Israel go, nah, we're not into all that morality. We don't really want to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We really just want to be victorious in our battles. And we're seeing, we see here in Revelation 19 that this has always been the battle. It's always been the battle that you would walk through life and that you would actually know truth. That you would walk through life and understand that the schemes of the enemy are to discourage and to deceive you and to blind you as to the truth and goodness of who God is. His skills are the same as Genesis chapter 3. They show up here in Revelation chapter 19. It's always the same. That the devil is after your worship. He's after your heart. And he will stop at nothing to deceive and to discourage you. But there's coming a day when Jesus enters in and he removes all deception. He removes all opposition. Are you excited for that day? Are you excited for the day when you can see clearly without the fog of sin clouding your vision? Verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You want to see? This is great. This is such a, this will give you nightmares. Turn back to Zechariah. This is like, this is so good. We'll, we won't end here. This is too sad to end on. Uh, I don't want you leaving thinking about this. We, we tried to watch, uh, <laughs> we tried to watch, I have, I have a, if you don't know, I have a bunch of kids and we tried to do a movie last night. We tried to watch Moana. And the beginning of Moana has all of these like dark images. And uh, my son woke up in the middle of the night last night and he said, Dad, I'm just thinking of all the scary stuff from the movie. 
I thought, it's two in the morning. Why? Why? Uh, why does that matter? I don't know. I just told you that because I want you to know what I go through. <laughs> Look at Zechariah chapter 12. You know, this last battle is, is um, prophesied in Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 12. Verse 1, the oracle, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The seas of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. It gets worse, madness, blindness. Turn one page over to Zechariah 14. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one shall be raised against the hand of the other. You know, that's the, that's the most consistent way God removes armies in the Old Testament is that the armies just go crazy and they start killing each other. It happens all the time where it looks like there's this major enemy that is coming against God's people. And then all of a sudden, they take out their swords and they start hacking each other to pieces. And the battle's over. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. That's what happens when Jesus arrives and judges the kingdom of the Antichrist and the false prophets, that he removes life itself and everything falls to pieces. Now, gosh, I got another half hour of stuff. It's important that we consider what we see here in Revelation chapter 19 especially because it brackets the material we have about the judgment of God. Because you have no lack of information at this point in your Bible about who Jesus is and what his return will look like. And the question you have is what will you do with Jesus Christ today? That's the burning question of Revelation chapter 19. Will you see the character of who he is and will you turn in repentance for sin? Will you receive right standing from the one who can extend and has authority on earth to forgive sins? Or will you refuse him? Will you rebel against his word and against his grace and against the life that he continues to extend to you? That is no small question. That is the question that the scriptures handle all the way through these 66 books, is what will you do with Jesus Christ?
I just um, thought of this. We'll close with this. And we'll celebrate communion. Um, Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, these are sobering words. This is a fearsome passage. For those who come into this place here today and have not yet considered the truth, the full truth of who you are, we pray that as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, that again, we would worship you because of what Jesus has done for us, that he has removed the wrath of God, he has forgiven our sins, he has clothed us in the robe of righteousness, white and pure, and has seated us with him in the heavenlies. Father, for those who have heard this message here today, we pray for a spirit of grace to be about uh, our tone and our conversation, that they would turn and plead before you for forgiveness. And that because you are faithful, because Jesus has died, and because Jesus has risen, that we can have confidence to come boldly into the throne room of grace knowing that we are forgiven and washed clean, not because of what we have done, not because we have understood even all of who you are, but because you are faithful to your word and that you will cleanse those who come to you in faith. We pray for the gift of faith here today. We pray for hearts as they stand and they get ready to celebrate communion, that they would leave this place and that our hearts would be encouraged once again to come before you and find uh, forgiveness of sins, assurance in our hearts that you love us and you've poured out your blood for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.